Well, good morning. We're going to continue in our series as we pull out a few of the Proverbs and try to see how they apply to our lives. Um, you know, last week uh, we looked at this statement, and that is that it, is, uh, it, is, it makes good sense for us to be slow to anger and to overlook an offense. Now, that's not an easy thing to preach, nor is it an easy thing to do. In fact, I've had several people come up to me and thank me for the message because, and then they told me their story, and how that now they're going to go back and try to overlook an offense and forgive a long-standing offense. And I, boy, I tell you, that thrills me so much. And um, you know, the honest truth is, preaching through the Proverbs is not easy because um, I don't get it right either. I told those people that came to see me that, that's, that the, the difference between you and me is I repent before I get to church because I've been working on this message for several days. So that's the only difference between the two of us. Early on in my ministry, I came to this sort of personal understanding that there's no way in the world that I can get up and stand in front of people and talk to you and, and, and talk about things that are so important because I get it all right. Because I always know in my heart of hearts that I'm struggling with stuff, that I don't get it all right. And today, we're going to come to another topic. And here is the topic. It's pride goes before destruction. Would you like to say that with me? Pride goes before destruction. Uh, this is in Proverbs 16, 18. Now the beautiful thing about Proverbs is that they are pithy little statements that are designed to stick into our mind and hearts because these are things we need to be thinking about. Our biggest problem is not a lack of money or needing to lose weight or needing to water our lawn, which you probably do. Our biggest problem is pride. You know, there are two ways to walk into a room. My wife told me this. You can walk into a room and in your heart you're thinking, here I am. Or you can walk into a room and in your heart be thinking, there you are. You know, the, those are two different heart dispositions. And I'm going to tell you that if you walk into a room and you're like, well, here I am. Who's going to talk to me? Who's going to be nice to me? Who's going to find me a seat? Who's going to serve me something? You will live a disappointed life from now into the future. If, however, you walk into every room and as you walk in, you say, there you are. How are you? Can I help you? Can I get you something? I think that contrasts very uh, clearly the difference between pride and humility. Here I am is someone who's going to be constantly offended. Someone who walks in and says, there you are, is someone who's going to be constantly blessing other people. So important. Um, so let's just take a look at a few of the verses in Proverbs that have to do with pride. I want to ask you this question. Do you have a problem with pride? Don't answer that out loud. Because I'm going to answer it for you in just a minute, okay? But do you, are you a prideful person? 
That's a different question. But do you have a problem with pride is one that's not very hard to figure out. Proverbs 8.13 says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. What does God hate? He hates pride, arrogance, the evil way and a perverse mouth. Proverbs 11 verse two, when pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 13, 10, by pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord will destroy the house of the pride, proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. Proverbs 16, five and 18, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Listen to that strong language. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. Pride goes before destruction, and that's sort of our tagline today, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So it does matter how you come into the room. Are we gonna come into the room and say, here I am, or are we gonna come into the room and say, there you are? I just got a, a three points for you, as I usually do, okay? I almost only had two today, but then I stuck in a third one. Number one, pride always goes before destruction. Pride is not neutral. Pride is pulling us down a path of destruction every day. Now the problem with pride is that we all have it and we see it clearly in everyone else, but it's hard to see in ourselves. Winston, Winston Churchill famously said about his political rival, Clement Attlee, he's a humble little man with much to be humble about. Obviously, that statement didn't make Churchill look very um, humble, did it? Are you proud? Do you have a problem with pride? Now, this is not a trick question. The answer for me is yes, I have a problem with pride. And the answer for you is yes, so do you. C.S. Lewis says this about pride. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. John Stott said, pride is your greatest enemy Humility is your greatest friend. We all have a problem with pride. The first important step for us today is to understand we got a problem. Because when you don't think you have a problem, that's when you're on the path to destruction. Isaiah 14, 13 to 15 tells the story 
of when Lucifer, the, the most beautiful uh, angel, the greatest angelic being created by God, who was sort of like, he stood beside God all the time. He decided that he could be God instead of God. Isaiah 14, 13 to 15. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. That's what Lucifer said. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. God immediately cast Lucifer out of heaven. He was the greatest, highest angel, and God had to judge him because his pride made him feel like he could take the place of God. And then when he, when he came to the earth, fallen Lucifer comes as a serpent and tempts Adam and Eve. And what was the temptation? Well, the temptation was to question the goodness of God. He challenges the word of God in that brief conversation in Genesis. He proposes that Adam and Eve could choose to be their own gods, to know and decide between good and evil. It was this attitude of pride that destroyed the serenity, the tranquility, and the perfection of the garden. It was the simple act of eating the forbidden fruit, which was a declaration of rebellion against God and the usurping of ultimate decision, decision-making power on the part of human beings. Make no mistake, pride was the central motivator of that sin. Proverbs 16.5, everyone proud in heart is an abomination. Man, that, that is a pretty strong word, abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 8, 13, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Such a strong statement. Now, you and I use the word hate all the time, but it's interesting how we use it. We, we use it up for like trivial things. For instance, my son James will tell you that he hates broccoli. I hate broccoli, he says. So what do I do? Because I have the spiritual gift of annoying. I'm always trying to give him broccoli. My wife reminds me, you know, Eddie, annoying is not a spiritual gift. I might do it to her too. Just this week, I, I was in a conversation with somebody, and a, a, the topic of cooking liver came up. So this guy says, yeah, I, I cook liver. I, I like liver. And I'm like shocked and amazed. He, I said, you actually like liver? He said, yeah, I like liver. It's really good for you. I said, yeah, my mom thought so too. When I was a little boy, my mom had heard that liver was a very nutritious thing for us to have to eat, and so once a week we were gonna have liver. And I wanna tell you something, I hate liver. <laughs> the texture, the, the, the flavor, um, you can load that thing up with lots of onions and whatever, and I still hate liver. 
Now, my mother was so committed to our good health that she sat us down and she served us a serving of liver and says, this is good for you kids, you have to eat this. And I would gag and choke and I would not want to eat it. And finally the rule came down, you will eat this liver and you must not gag or choke, you're going to eat it and like it. To which I said as a little boy in my heart of hearts, there's no way in the world I'm ever going to like it. Spank me if you must. But God says, I hate pride. I hate pride so much. When I think of the character of God, I think about Jesus. Here we have the eternal God who created all things and rules heaven and earth, who sustains us daily by his good gifts. And this good God sent his son to this world and he was born as a baby, God confined to the body of an infant. God humbled himself and submitted himself to limitations as an expression of his love and service to us. You know, there's very little uh, that is written in the New Testament about the childhood of Jesus. In fact, after the birth of Jesus in the manger, the only other thing that we learn about is when Jesus is 12 years old and his family makes the yearly trip to the temple in Jerusalem for Passover. Jesus goes with them. And as a 12-year-old, you know, it, it, it's a family clan that's traveling and so he's either with his mom or his dad, and the women are in the company of women, and the men are in the company of men. And so they get, they get to Jerusalem, they, they go through the, the rituals of worship at the Passover, and then they leave, and on their way home, they were out a day's journey, and Mary says to Joseph, hey, where's Jesus? And he, Joseph says, oh, I, I don't have Jesus. I thought you had him. No, I don't have Jesus. What, what do you mean? Jesus is not with us? Oh my goodness, we just lost the Son of God. So they get ready and they go back. This is the second day. They get back to Jerusalem and now they're looking high and low for Jesus. Where is Jesus? They finally find him on the third day and he is in the temple and he is having a conversation. Already been a long conversation apparently. And he's talking with the elite of the elites, the educators and the teachers of Israel, and they are amazed by his questions and the conversation that they're having. Mary and Joseph find Jesus and say, what are you doing? Jesus answers, didn't you know I should be about my father's business? And he wasn't talking about Joseph at that point. So there was something in Jesus that felt like he should be doing something in Jerusalem. And you know what his parents did? They disagreed with the Son of God, Jesus, at 12 years old and said, well, you're coming home with us, boy. And what did Jesus do? Did he pull out the God card and say, I'm sorry, Mom and Dad? No, no. It says in Scripture that he submitted to them. It's an act of humility. And he went back with them. And he grew in stature 
and wisdom and favor with God and man. This is God limiting himself. God's not acting with pride and arrogance. Then later on, as Jesus begins his ministry, he, he's, he's, he's noticing, as everybody else is, the ministry of John the Baptist, who is actually his cousin. And people are leaving the city to go find John to be baptized. It was a baptism of repentance in expectation of the coming of the Messiah. I mean, the, John the Baptist was like, he was like the, the last prophet before Jesus came. He was the last person to speak the words of God before the Son of God came on the scene. And as he is baptizing people, and they're coming out in droves, and he's baptizing, next, next, all of a sudden Jesus is in line. And as Everyone gets baptized, Jesus takes his step forward and he waits. And he takes his step forward and he waits. I mean, you could have thought maybe the Son of God would say, Hey, I'm the guy, I'm coming, I'm going to the front of the line. Oh, not Jesus. He gets into the water and then John realizes, Oh my, this is Jesus. And he kind of whispers to Jesus and says, Jesus, I don't think I should be doing this to you. Look, I know who you are. John the Baptist met Jesus in the womb. Remember that story? His mother Elizabeth, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, carrying Christ as a child in the womb, walks in, who womb quickens, and John the Baptist is filled in the womb with the Holy Spirit. So there was a connection. Jesus says, I'm ready to be baptized. And, and John says, I don't think that's appropriate. I should be baptized by you. And Jesus whispers to him, we must do this to fulfill all things. You know what Jesus is doing? He is submitting to the story and the plan of the ages that the God who created all things would send his son. And he says, I want people to know. I submit to the story that actually Jesus and the Godhead wrote before eternity, before time began. God God hates pride because it doesn't do anything good. Charles Bridges in his commentary on Proverbs says this, pride lifts up the heart against God. It contends for supremacy with him. How unseemly, moreover, is this sin, a creature so utterly dependent, so fearfully guilty, yet proud in heart, a proud person seeks to glorify himself and not God. A proud person has one goal in mind, self-glorification. And let me go back to the practical way I started. You walk into the room and you say, here I am. The fruit of pride is sobering. It's painful. Pride goes before destruction and when we're not aware of this battle we will be taken away by the pride in our heart which which let me let me ask you this question do you are you proud you probably can't see it isn't that scary now ask your wife or your husband i bet they could see it or your kids Or maybe you'd want to pray Psalm 139, 23 to 24, a prayer that takes a lot of courage. 
and humility. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Secondly, pursue humility. Pursue humility. James 4, 6 to 10. He gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Pursue humility. How do you pursue humility? I've got a few suggestions. Number one, study the attributes of God. You know, when you study the attributes of God, you notice how big God is, how powerful God is, and, and you, you also put yourself in perspective and you begin to realize how small you are. You know, God is infinite. He's transcendent. He needs nothing to exist. He is self-sustaining. God is eternal. He had no beginning. He will have no end. We do not have the capacity to understand these mysteries. God is omnipowerful and omnipresent. R.C. Sproul, the great theologian, said that God is everywhere equally present. God never misses anything. I know that there are times that you and I are present in the room but distracted by something else. Has it ever happened to you? When James comes into the room and talks to Cindy and I, he comes into the living room and he says, uh, Mom, Dad, uh, I talk, I talk. And then he says to me, uh, Dad, phone down. Phone down. Mom, laptop, down. You know why? James is a smart enough boy to know you can be there and not be there. That kind of reminds me of when I was a father of young children in the pool, and they all are trying to jump into the pool. Hey, Dad, catch me. And they jump, and I catch them, and I'm playing the game of catch and return. That's what I'm doing. This is not fishing, catch and release. It's catch and return. So they jump. I pick them up, and, and I put them back on the side of the pool. And the next one is jumping in, and I get them and put them on the side of the pool. The next one jumps in. And you know what? There have been a time or two when someone jumped in. I wasn't ready because I was still returning. And they went under the water. I think, I think it was Robert. And he goes under the water. And so I returned the, the first one. And I ran to get him and fished him out of the water and pulled him out. And he said, Dad, I was drowning. You let me drown. I'm going to tell Mom. And I said, you did not drown. You went under the water. And I rescued you. I'm telling Mom. Because I can't be everywhere. But God is. God is everywhere. He knows what's going on in your life today. He hasn't missed a thing. He heard every conversation. He knows every hurt. He knows every worry. He knows every concern. He knows everything. And, and when I come into the presence of a God so great as that, I am humbled. 
I can admit I need you, God. I can't deal with this. God is also self-existent. God doesn't need anything to exist. You and I, we, we are very dependent. Did you know that? I mean, we could strut around and act like we're high and mighty and, you know, we've got a fat bank account and a, a good car and, and, and we think our future is secured until it's not, right? But we need stuff. It's amazing if God withholds the rain and gives us about it feels like 50 days, but it's probably only been about 10 days of 100 degree weathers, right? I don't know about you, but my grass is brown and crunchy. What I'm reminded of is like we're actually dependent on God keeping the weather patterns going. We need the rain only he can give. We're dependent on God for every breath that we breathe, every bit of energy and every step that we take. We need food and shelter and help. Someone said, we live between two hospitals. The hospital where we were born and perhaps the hospital where we will die. And in between those two hospitals, we need a support system. We really do because we are not self-sustaining. It is God who sustains life. God never changes. He doesn't grow old. He never discovers anything because he knows it all. He knows the beginning and the end. He's, he's already viewed every day of your life. Did you know that? So when he says, I promise I'll never leave you or forsake you, he knew what he was getting himself into. You know, the last few weeks, we've been seeing some incredible images coming out of this new telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Now, this is no ordinary telescope. This telescope cost $10 billion. Didn't know you could spend that much on a telescope, did you? I mean, the pictures that, that we're seeing right now, those are not stars. Those are galaxies. I mean, those galaxies, the, the picture that we're looking at, it took almost the entire history of the universe for the light, they're so far away, to get back to us so the telescope could, could pick it up. Every dot, blob, and smudge in that image is a galaxy which contains millions or even billions of stars. The more we study space, the more we understand that the universe is constantly expanding. It is an illustration of the bigness and the infinitude of God. This is how big God is. A galaxy is a huge collection of gas, dust, billions of stars, and, and, and solar systems. And they're held together by gravity, and I'm going to have to stop there because, you know, I know we've got some smart people in this room, and I'm going to get past what I know. But I do find it fascinating that we're in the Milky Way, Milky Way galaxy, and the next nearest star to our sun is called Proxima Centauri. And at a maximum velocity of 35,000 miles an hour, which is deep space one, it would take over 81,000 years to traverse the 4.24 light years between Earth and Proxima Centauri. To put that time scale into perspective, that would be over 2,700 generations. And I'm here to say, that is so big. I don't even know how to understand that. 
And it makes me want to say from Psalms 8, 3, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned him with glory and honor. Our pride gets treated when we stand in the presence of a God so big, it is beyond our understanding. Every day, here's some suggestions. We begin by acknowledging our dependence on God. Wake up every day, God, I'm here today because you woke me up and you sustained me today. Thank you. When we express our gratefulness to God, we fight pride. Pride does not grow in the soil of gratitude. So when we spend time to thank God for all things, thank you for the food I'm about to eat. Thank you for the air I breathe. Thank you for the water that we can drink. Thank you for the beautiful trees and grass. Gratitude is so important because it, it helps us remember who we are. We're dependent creatures in the presence of an eternal, powerful, incredible God. God, I thank you that I have the strength to work. <clears throat> I thank you that I have a job. And I thank you for my income. And God, I thank you for the people in my life because... That's what make my life, makes my life so rich. I thank you for my wife, my children. I thank you for my grandchild. That's what I, I do thank God for her. I thank God for my brother and my sister and their families. And I thank God for my sister-in-law and my friends and the people I go to church with and the people I get to interact with every day because I'm gonna tell you right now that you make my life richer and I thank you and I thank God for you. And then every day we should practice the, practice the spiritual disciplines. Prayer, studying of the word of God, a personal moment in worship, the confession of sins daily. You don't read the Bible and pray because you're trying to get new information. You're humbling yourself before God and declaring your dependence on him. It's a daily thing. And when you're filled with anxiety and concerns, let those anxieties and concerns trigger you to seek God. 1 Peter 5, <clears throat> 5 to 7. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know, when I'm all concerned about something, I can feel a panic because I don't know what to do. Do you ever feel that? Sometimes as a father, I'm like, I just don't know. People look to me to know and I don't know and I don't, I'm not sure and, but First Peter says this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God 
and he will exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. God, I'm anxious because of this or that or this, and I just don't know. I am small, but you are big. I am finite, but you are eternal. And I will trust you with this concern. I will cast my concern on you, God. And you know what God says? I care for you. I'm going to help you. So every thought that is anxious can be delivered as an offering to God in humility, begging for his help. And God says, that's what I need. That's what I need from you. And then number three, one of the greatest points to find humility is to remember the cross where Jesus died and stand before the cross every day. And we will be humbled as we say. I do not deserve to be forgiven. I do not deserve the love of God, the grace and mercy of God, but I will accept with humility that Jesus came to die for me because he loves me. I have nothing to boast. I just fall on my knees in grateful surrender to a God so good. The proverb is pride goes before destruction, but humility invites the presence of God. Will you bow your heads, please?